0: Spire.
1: Welcome back to Starting Now. I'm your host, Jeff Seris. This is a show where we help you get started on your next idea. Today, I'm talking to Srini Rao of Unmistakable Creative and the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where he's interviewed over a thousand guests. He's the author of several books, including Unmistakable, and audience of one. And In this episode, we dive into what it means to be unmistakable, the central tenet of what he does, and why he would rather talk to someone who's interesting with an interesting story rather than someone who's famous, and why he doesn't believe all the hype that everyone should have a podcast. Well, I hope you enjoy this episode, and without further ado, Srini Rao. So yeah there, Srini. Thanks so much for taking the time to be on the show.
0: Yeah, my pleasure.
1: So you've done, as we were talking about before we started, you've done maybe a thousand interviews up until this point, which is mind boggling. (laughs) One of the things I I find that you do a really good job at sort of the icebreaker, figuring out Mm -hmm. what to say to the person to make them comfortable and get started. Sometimes you dive into maybe their family, maybe Mm -hmm. um, their schooling or something like that. What do you think makes a great icebreaker?
0: And how do you choose based on the guests? Yeah. So that's a good question. Uh, I'll tell you where our thought process behind this came from. So one of the things that an old business partner I used to work with noticed was he said, you know, you get these beautiful nuggets out of people, but it doesn't happen until about 20 minutes into the show. Like you get them into flow. He said I think we can get you there a lot faster. He said change the way that you start the show. He said, "You know what? You're going to get to their work and, you know, their story and all that stuff." But the the thing is, like we so we just, you know, came up with sort of a blanket list of questions to start, like what social group were you a part of in high school or, you know, what did your parents do for work or what's the most important thing you've learned from one of your parents? And part of the reason for that is that it's a combination of two things one is is it basically interrupts a pattern right because if you interview people who are public figures who get interviewed they get asked the same BS questions constantly right like oh tell me how you got started which is literally one of the worst questions ever I think um, because the, the thing that uh, you know when you ask the questions that I do the natural byproduct of that is you can't answer one of those questions without telling a story. And human beings are hardwired to listen to story, particularly in audio. And this is where most of the sort of online marketing slash business podcasts completely miss the boat when they do interviews, because they don't recognize that audio is an entertainment medium first and an information medium second. Um, In fact, I will choose somebody who is interesting and entertaining over somebody who's famous or will teach you something practical every single time. So for example, we had a porn star as a guest yesterday that we just aired. I mean, we can get into sort of how I choose guests and all that, but that's really the thought process behind the icebreaker. So I don't think that here's the thing. Like, I think then people hear you ask that question, they're going to be like, all right, great. Let me write down, you know, a list of questions that Srini gives me to ask. And I think that's the worst way to do it. Like, these are my questions, but I think that you should come up with questions that you're curious about, but think about the fact that, you know, There are certain questions that elicit stories. Like if you ask somebody what their social group was in high school, they're going to have to tell a story. Now, how do I choose the questions? Sometimes it's just off the cuff, like whatever comes to mind. But for example, if I'm interviewing social science researchers, the social group thing always comes up because they're two kind of connected stories. Um. Sometimes, you know, like, for example, I'm reading a book right now about a woman who has talked about you know, um, the role that her father leaving played in that book. And I was like, "Oh okay, so I could start, and she's a social scientist, so I could start with one of those two questions. I could ask her about the lessons learned from a parent, or I could ask about the social group. Uh, I don't know which one I'm going to ask because I'm literally doing book notes for her right now. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's kind of um, the purpose of the, the opening is the icebreaker is to elicit a story.
1: Yeah, I think that's wonderful advice. And I'm definitely going to be picking your brain a little bit because I'm new to this podcasting world and you've been doing this for a good decade now. And I mean, I'm really interested about this and then diving into more about um, what it means to be unmistakable and things that you've written about in the past and uh, currently write about. So you, you touched on picking people. Based on how interesting they are versus being famous, yeah. How do you go about finding people that are interesting and have a story to tell?
0: <laughs> so this is uh, this is one of those questions that you know people will ask me questions like, what are the criteria? Because you know the reason I thought about a thousand interviews is I just started reading Terry Gross's book that somebody had sent to me as a gift, and you know I was looking at the similarities between you know some of the things she does and some of the things that I do, and I was like, oh, cool, like I, you know works for her, works for me, but. Uh, you know, I think that the big thing is, is curiosity. You know, people ask me sometimes like, what are the criteria for being a guest? And I was like, well, if we could give you a set list of criteria, then it wouldn't be unmistakable. Um, that would be the antithesis of unmistakable. And it's really difficult to put into words, uh, what makes me say yes and no, like my roommates joke that like our rejection rate is higher than Harvard's, which is true. Like I probably <laughs> say yes to one in 10 guests. Um, and, you know, it, I mean, in the, our iTunes reviews reflect that. You know, I think the the thing that I'm always aiming for is I'm trying to find people that you wouldn't have heard on a thousand other podcasts. Um, but more than anything, like I choose people based on my own personal curiosity. The other joke that people have is that every guest is a reflection of some problem that I'm trying to solve in my life, uh, <laughs> which there's a grain of truth to that. You know, like for a while, I was like talking to everybody about dating and relationships and I'm still single. So clearly they didn't help me solve that problem. But that's a story for another day. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that is, is really it. I mean, I'm all, you know, I'm, I'm an avid reader. Funny enough, I don't listen to podcasts. Like it's not my preferred form of media consumption. I, I think they're, I don't know why they just don't hold my attention. Uh, which is strange, right? Considering I've done a thousand interviews. Uh, you know, I, I, I listen to, I, I like pop into a few every now and then, but I don't have sort of a regular podcast rotation, uh, which I honestly, I think has given me an edge as an interviewer because I'm not hearing the way other people do things all the time. Uh, but yeah, it's, It's really hard to boil it down into, you know, what it is. But honestly, I kind of let myself just go down rabbit holes. The other thing I do is if I'm reading a book and I keep seeing names of people who are mentioned in that book, I just start underlining them and I keep a steady, I keep a bullet journal where I have a list of potential podcast guests. Um, So, you know, I'm never worried that I'm going to run out of potential ideas for guests.
1: Yeah. Um, So Sort of on that note, is bullet journaling how you keep track of all of these ideas and concepts? Because so, your stuff is very—it's very rich with references yeah. to yeah things you've read, maybe movies you've seen. No, 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 no. I, don't, I don't,
0: I don't. You know, it would be very like I love the bullet journal. Like so, you know, I'm writing a, a piece called "The Ultimate Guide to Making Ideas Happen." Right now, in fact, it's finished. But um, I use the bullet journal to track my daily tasks, but I use Notion to. Uh, manage to have all my book notes, right? So I have an entire database, Mm -hmm. like a reading list of like 300 books where I have all the notes from all the books that I've read, um, highlights, underlines, like, you know, Ryan Holiday has the note card system. Uh, Tiago Forte has something called Second Brain and I kind of just merged the two Uh, because I, the problem with me, for me with the note card system is my handwriting is atrocious. And not only that, I just noticed that I wasn't disciplined enough to follow through, but I don't just like scan, you know, text. I I actually type it up. And I think there's something about that because it, it viscerally reinforces, um, you know, a concept because you're typing it by hand. So I have literally a database of like two, 300 books. And the other thing is I use those, use all that stuff to write articles. I use it um, through, I mean, you'll see quotes woven throughout even my written pieces and those all come from the books I've read or, you know, even podcasts. So, um, you know, I'm even working on, you know, sort of how we integrate podcast content right now into other forms, uh, you know, like the, the writing and stuff. And that's kind of a work in progress because uh, I've been a very good creator, but a pretty lousy promoter.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that is, that is another, it's another form of creativity, but it's very yeah. difficult. It's hard to extend into, into the promotion side. Yeah.
0: The thing is, so I, I think the, the, like, like I, I have sort of, an, there, there's multiple schools of thought on this, right? Like some people will say spend 20% of the time creating 80% of the time promoting. And to me, I was like, yeah, if you have mediocre content, then do that. Um, <laughs> You know, like I think that my focus has always been okay. Let's produce shit that is so like good that people can't help but listen. Like, you know, I, I think the idea we're after here, you know, love him or hate him, Roger Ailes is pretty brilliant because he built Fox News into something that people can never turn off. Like that was one of his, you know, mantras was like, if we do this, they will never change the channel. Now, I, you know, you've probably guessed from my own podcast that I'm far from a Fox News viewer. I'm as liberal as it gets, but there, this is one of those things I think, you know, and we can talk about this as well, is that you shouldn't close yourself off to a a person's message just because you hate the messenger. Like a guy who built Fox news into this mega behemoth probably knows a thing or two about building an audience, you know? So maybe he's worth listening to. Um, so I, I think that the idea behind this was okay. Like how do we create content where people will never turn it off? Um, As opposed to how do we just blanket the web and, you know, basically try to be an assault on people's attention.
1: Yeah. And that's, that goes in with sort of your main premise of being unmistakable. Yeah. Um, How does someone, so how do you describe unmistakable? And then how does someone... Find that for themselves, what
0: it takes so to I, be unmistakable. So, you know, for the purpose of writing a book, you have to obviously define it. And so I think that the way I defined it was when something is unmistakable, it's so distinctive that it's immediately recognized as something that you did and that nobody else could have done because everything about it just kind of has your name all over it where you don't even have to put your name on. it. So like the example that I come back to over and over again, and, and part of why he's played such an integral role in the book and also the, the idea and the brand uh, is my friend Mars Dorian. Like if you see a Mars Dorian piece of art roll through your newsfeed, doesn't matter if he did it for himself, a client or anybody else. You just know, you can take one look at it. And you're like, the only person who could have done that is Mars. It's that sort of unique of a signature. Now the how part of it, it again, like this is the, the thing that gets us into trouble, right? Uh people want prescriptive advice. And my advice is very rarely prescriptive. Like I, I use tactics to kind of you know pepper them. But um I think the there are a couple of ways to do this. And part of, but but I think it's really important that we talk about sort of this mindset of, you know, prescriptive advice, because the sort of thing that happens in the world of of sort of, you know, online entrepreneurship is you see somebody do something, they get a particular result. And then you think, okay, I'm going to do that exact thing. And I'm going to get the same result. Now, like, there's value in learning from other people, but we mistake mimicking and modeling. So you know, there's um, a perfect example of this, uh, you know, and no, no discredit to her is the people who come out of Marie Forleo's B School. Uh, it, it's funny because I can, like, I can put five websites up next to each other and I can spot B School alumni a mile away. And I, I remember one of my friends sent me, you know, a list of five guests that she wanted to have. And, and she had been a guest uh, and she's a PR person. And I looked at all of them side by side and I was like, I don't know what the fuck any of these people do. Um, and I don't understand. You know what's what's distinctive about them, but the thing is that you'll see this. They'll like copy the um you know, and, and you can talk to Laura Belgrade, who's Marie's top copywriter, who's been a guest on our show, and she'll tell you the same thing. She'll she'll validate what I'm saying to you because she said it on my show. Uh, you get these people. They're like, oh, and so as a result, they deny the very thing that makes them unique, the very thing that makes them distinctive. Now, I think though there are a couple of ways to do this. This is largely a process of discovery. I mean, I I met you probably seven, probably nine years ago, like I, I think at South by Southwest or something, but um. This is a work in progress. Like what you're doing is you're peeling layers of an onion, you know? And and that comes through creating. Like you have to put work out into the world to discover this. Like it's not, you know, we didn't fall out of the womb this way. Like we started as a podcast for bloggers talking about how to increase traffic to your blogger, how to grow a blog, which now nobody gives two shits about on my my in my <laughs> audience. Uh, and I don't care about it because it's just not that interesting to me. Um, but the thing is, like we wouldn't have gotten there without hundreds of interviews to really understand that. Like there are through lines and threads in all of your work that you do. And the only way to find those through lines is create more. Like if you have a small body of work, it's hard to figure that out. So, you know, it, I think even in the book itself, I said, you know, like I, I understood this idea, but it didn't really become unmistakable until 2014. Like that's when we completely gutted the old brand, rebranded it, um, you know, brought in all this, this artwork and all this stuff. Uh, but I, I think this is the thing that I always tell people. Right, it's a bit like a variation on Austin Cleon "Steal Like an Artist." Yes, you know, y- the thing is that what you want to do is you want to borrow ingredients from other people but come up with your own recipes. So, for example, you know, if I saw something that I liked, you know, like we're we're playing with narrative journalism now and, and going away from just the interview format. You've probably heard some of the episodes we're doing. And you know what we're doing is we're kind of like okay cool like we like that is you know that that NPR does but we also have amazing dialogue where our guests you know you could create standalone episodes where I don't say a word and we have and so it's a, a bit like basically borrowing various elements. So another example I'll give you is is one thing that I always thought when I saw interview shows is like and I'm, I still haven't figured out how to do this because I just don't have the the skill set I don't think but to take an interview subject, and instead of having one person interview that person, tell that person's story through the lens of three other people, like a family member, a friend, a sibling. And that would be so much more interesting than the sort of standard interview, like you would stand out like that to me would be unmistakable. Uh, So, you know, the thing that you have to think about is that you want a compass, not a map, right? A map is great to get you to where somebody else has gone before, but a compass is what's going to lead you to sort of uncharted territory. Uh, you know, it, like nobody thought of oh, a podcast into animated shorts. Like, you know, we were like, oh, well, you know, the dialogue in our podcast is compelling enough that it could be turned into animated shorts. So let's do that. Uh, you know, and so it's borrowing elements from different art forms. You know, like it's terrible best practice for SEO to use a cartoon as your about page. That's like borrowed from comic books, but we did it. Uh, so I, I think that there's, there's constant sort of, experimentation that has to happen to figure out what resonates with an audience. Uh, and that's the thing, like we are the anomaly of this world in that we started long before everybody else did and we've grown slower and we're smaller, but we have an audience that is loyal. Like go look at our iTunes reviews and they're insane. Like some of them are crazy. You know, people are like my whole family listens to this show. Um, And so that, you know, like it's a hard question to answer even after writing a book about this, but this is how I've always summed it up in in the most crude way possible. Like I jokingly always say that unmistakable could have alternatively alternatively been titled everybody is full of shit because that's effectively what I just said in a very sophisticated way. I just don't think my publisher would have printed a book titled everybody is full of shit. But th- that's the thing, right? I-, I came to realize when I saw the pattern over and over again, I was like, wow, no wonder people are struggling because they're denying the very things that make them interesting because they're trying to be like everybody else.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that is... You you—you embody this. You embody being unmistakable. Like you said, through your podcast, you rebranded, you changed it. You use art. It, art flows through everything you do. I've noticed too as like you as a person... You really embrace opportunities and go for different things to, um, to experiment to see what might stick. I saw a few months ago you did a short film on your parent on your family yeah. and their cooking. Yeah, and I mean, a just short documentary and put totally. it on YouTube, see how it yeah. goes, and like doing something like that. And then I was going to bring that up, but. I kind of want to zoom past it a little bit because I just discovered that you're going to be on a Netflix show. And well, when this airs, (laughs) you'll already
0: be on Netflix. Yeah, it's well, that's ridiculous. So like that has (laughs) nothing to do with my creative capabilities. We'll get there. Let me I'll I'll, I'll get I'll I'll talk about it. I'm happy to talk about it. But yeah, you know, like when I one thing like the the weird thing is like I got into all of this, you know, I went to business school in L.A. because I wanted to work in the entertainment industry. Like my dream was to actually pick what went on television and, and like work in scripted television. But I came to realize nobody hires MBAs to do creative work in the entertainment industry. And the more I got down this path, I realized I was like, I didn't want to pick what went on the air. I wanted to create it. And of course, like I get to do that in a very roundabout way, but film and video were something that always intrigued me. Like I would just have like envy looking at the work that you guys did. I'm like, Fuck, how do you do that without like thousands of dollars in expensive camera equipment? But when the iPhone 11 came out and I saw the things that people were doing with it, I was like, okay, you know what? Like, why not? I need a subject. Um, I need something that I find interesting personally, but I need a story. Like I need a storyline in here. And the interesting thing is, I learned how to do the story aspect of this from writing for years. Like I understood how to create a narrative because like, you know, for a first documentary, yeah, there's some technical problems with it where my voice is a little louder or not, but the story itself follows a very clear arc and narrative. And the only reason I knew how to do that was from years of running the podcast and years of writing. And so it was mixing different skill sets. And the truth is like, I didn't do that because I wanted to build an audience for it. I just wanted to do something because like, it seemed really fun. And it was, I had a blast doing it. Like, in fact, been talking to my roommates about wanting to make a film about what it's like to be quarantined, you know, what friendship is like in this period of being quarantined. We're very lucky that we're, you know, three of us are with each other. We get along famously and we're, we're having a really good time. We're all going as crazy as everybody else is. But, um, you know, so yeah, it's, here's the thing. Like people will say, oh, you know, like you, you probably will know me as a podcast host, but when people are like, what do you do? I tell them I use the internet to make things <laughs> like, that's my job. Um and so I, I think that that my default sort of question, and I told Chase Jarvis as in Creative Live, is that when new technology comes to market, um, you know, a lot of people look at it and like, oh, this is cool. And my first instinct is, oh, what can I make with this that I couldn't before? You know, like, and so I'll, I'll give you sort of a, a thought process that really has shaped the way I think about this. And you know, credit where credit is due, Julian Smith, um you know, who runs a startup called Breather shared an idea with me. And the thing that Julian is really good at is, is being ahead of the curve on trends. But the thing that allows that is something really fascinating. One of the questions, and I, and you, if you actually take this question and dissect it, it's literally the source of billions of dollars in innovation. And that, you know, when you look at new technology, you say, what does this make possible that wasn't before? So let's go back to, you know, say, late 90s when the internet was just starting to sort of, you know, surface. Well, the porn industry, who's always at the forefront, figured out how to charge our credit cards, right? So, you get a combination of a web browser plus the ability to char- charge a credit card and the entire e-commerce industry is born. None of that was possible before the late 90s. Fast forward to say 2008, 2009 when I graduated from business school. Now you go into this era where suddenly desktop publishing, the ability to build websites, web 2.0, Amazon web services, you get the convergence of, you know, Amazon web services plus WordPress, plus all these different things. Suddenly we can go from idea to execution faster at a much lower cost than we ever could before. So if you think about it, that period, like Amazon Web Services, made it possible for all of us to do what we do without spending fortunes. Like to even do what we're doing right now would have cost millions of dollars. I mean, Zencaster itself is a perfect example that was made possible by that. Then you fast forward. Actually, you know that comes that, that comes right around the same time. Right around the same time, you have another thing that happens, and this is the one that you know I got to give credit to to Julian for. Um, you have a com- you, you have two things that happen. The iPhone comes out. And with the iPhone, you get the capability of location tracking. You combine you know, a mobile device with location tracking, and suddenly a whole slew of things that we take for granted in our lives today are possible. Lyft, Airbnb, Uber, DoorDash. None of those things would have been possible before that happened. So now we're at this sort of next inflection point where the question you have to ask yourself is, okay, we have all those things. Imagine combining all those things with artificial intelligence. What does that make possible? And the capabilities are pretty much infinite. Like it's going to go to the point where, I mean, you're, you know, you're a photographer, so like, you know, this, like the photo editing, like tedious work that you probably had to do in the past is probably going to be very nil to the point where all that's going to matter is your actual creative capabilities. Because what's going to happen is that um, as we basically keep bridging this gap between creativity and technology until it's no longer existent, uh, what will happen is that technical proficiency will matter less and less. And imagination will matter more and more, uh, because machines are going to take care of a lot of the technical aspects of this. And you know, we're still in the, and it doesn't mean that you don't need to be skilled at what you do. So let me be clear on that. But it's a very different type of skill set.
1: Yeah, and sort of along those lines, then you've you've written about doing writing five hundred words. That's sort of. Every day. <laughs> Or, or actually, I was gonna go though five hundred oh. words about two two years from now. I think it is like sort of your vision of what yeah. you may look like in a couple of years. Yeah. What currently are you seeing for yourself with knowing that AI is coming and all these things are happening?
0: Well, look, I mean, I, I, it's hard. That's that's you know, we we're trying to you know predict the future, and I don't have a crystal ball. Like I, you know, my dream was always to to get to the point where I could do a mainstream TV show on Netflix, not a dating show, obviously, but <laughs> uh, you know. I think that it's hard to say because what I think, like I said, is our execution speed will go up rapidly. Now you're asking about me in particular. You know, I I I think I, the one thing I'm very clear on is I never want to be defined by just one thing. Like I never want to be like I want the legacy to be a long string of projects, you know, ideas, thoughts. You know, ultimately, I think the just like at the end of my life, what I hope to have accumulated is like a massive body of work, and you know, I'm kind of on my way there. Uh, I, I think that. You know, what's interesting is, you know, we are now at a point where we have so much content from Unmistakable that we literally could take the existing content and spin it out into a separate show um, based on ideas instead of people. (laughs) You know, it's so this kind of stuff. I mean, I I think what you'll start to see is just as the team is able to grow and as we're able to scale, we will start just kind of, you know, getting bigger and bigger projects out there. Look, I mean, do I want I do want to make more documentary films. Uh, I would love to actually write, uh, you know, a television show like for mainstream TV. Those are a couple of things. Those are, you know, sort of lifelong creative goals.
1: Yeah. Um, What are some or
0: how big actually is the company? It's tiny. Me and like three, two freelancers. That's the thing. We we've always run lean and, you know, part of that is money, but part of that is, is intelligence. Like people bloat their teams for no good reason. I, you know, it, I was reading Terry Gross's book and I was just thinking to myself, she has a person who selects guests, a person who does the research. I'm like guy, hey, you work at NPR. You probably make a lot more money than I do to do that. And at the same time, like I've never let go of the guest selection, despite the fact that there are services that, you know, offer that because that's the one thing I think is like, you know, my sort of gift, my, my, my main contribution to this is that, so letting go of that that would be stupid because it would literally devalue what we do because when we'd just be, you know, in another database, like, I, you know, it would be just another database of people who are like pitching guests. And like, I know because I get those pitches and, and, you know, those people sometimes make the cut. Sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so what are some of the things that you have let go to bring freelancers in to do them?
0: I mean, audio editing is one. Uh, we've automated a lot of the production at this point. Like it was funny because I was thinking about, you know, like our snafu here, um, you know, getting started. And, you know, that doesn't happen to me anymore, not because I'm flawless, but because what we did is we used Airtable and and Zapier and all this stuff so that everything gets sent out automatically, no creating links, no emailing guests to notify them that their episodes are live, like no, you know, no scheduling emails, all that is done on autopilot. So I literally just pop in a link. Um, yeah, I mean, even sending out pitches, but I mean, the main thing, the only thing I really do nowadays is the interviews, everything else around the podcast, somebody else does.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you mentioned i actually want to I want to jump to another concept that I really like that you've written about so the art of unmistakable when that book came out, I just mm-hmm. absolutely loved it. I reread it this weekend and read the the next uh, unmistakable that book. I haven't gotten yeah. to audience of one just yet, but um in one of those books you mentioned being too invested to quit yeah what does that what does that mean for you, and how do can people use that sort of as a tool
0: for themselves so this this is a really you know. It, it, here's the thing, like you, you look at people who do things and like where that came from was uh, a guy who, you know, I started surfing the summer of like yeah, 2009 when I was at or 2008, I was an interned into it. And I remember this guy, at the bar, like I've been surfing is in, incredibly difficult to learn. He was like, go 50 times because you'll be too invested to quit. And so the thing is, it's kind of like if you show up and do something for 50 days, for example, it's like, oh, I'm going to write 50 blog posts. That's it. Like, I'm going to commit to 50 if I can get to 50. The thing that happens is by the time you get to 50, a number of different things start to happen. One is that you actually have visible progress of your efforts, right? Uh, That's a whole other concept. But like the key is to make sure that you're tracking progress based on actions, not outcomes, uh, because outcomes are completely out of your control. And that's one huge mistake I see over and over that basically slows people down or causes them to give up. But if you base it on actions, you're going to basically accelerate your progress and actually stay motivated. And this is like based on the, the research of uh, Tresama Billy, who um, is a professor at Harvard, who wrote a book called The Progress Principle. So that's one component of this idea of being too invested to quit. Like that's where some of it comes from. Now, There's sort of a fine line of this sort of, you know, Sisyphean effort where you're like, this is going nowhere. Why do we continue with this? And I think you have to know when you're at a point where you should pull the plug. But most people actually think they're at that point, but they're not because they really haven't invested that much, you know, effort or time into something. They just kind of like, oh, I'm not making any progress. And it's like, you look at what they're doing and you're like, well, yeah, of course you're not. You don't do shit every day. Um, (laughs) It's kind of like the, the podcasters you'll hear who are like, oh, hey guys, I know I've been gone for three weeks. I'm like, dude, you've been gone for three weeks. Your audience has been gone for three weeks and they're probably not coming back. Um, because media consumption is based on habit formation, you know, like you think the example I come back to over and over again is like, look at a TV show, like friends that we all watched for 10 years, right? If NBC and the writers decided, Hey, you know what? We're just going to air episodes when we feel inspired or we're in the mood. That would have been a disaster. Nobody would have ever become fans of friends, but yet that's what content creators often do. And then they wonder why they're not making progress. so that's kind of on a, a you know basic level of getting too invested to quit. So my sort of litmus test is okay. You, we got to get to a point also though where we don't encourage delusional optimism, which the the world that we play in is notorious for that. Right? It's like hey, just quit your job and jump out of a you know airplane without a parachute, and it's like well, yeah, and then you're gonna drop to your death. Like people do really <laughs> stupid shit that is encouraged. And here's the the thing that you know like I want to say is like. What will happen is somebody in a position of influence will actually encourage somebody to do something that is stupid because it's in their interest to do that. It's like, well, you know, I'm sorry that you spent ten thousand dollars on my coaching program and shit is falling apart while I'm off gallivanting the world and uploading my perfect life to Instagram. And you know, that being said, people aren't responsible for the outcomes of the people that they work with, but I think that we have to have sort of a moral line to say, okay, you know what? like this is a person who shouldn't do this. We should turn this away. Because ultimately, you know, that's going to be on us for doing this. We put them in a situation that they, we knew would be detrimental to them. Um, And, you know, it's just kind of the natural sort of world of self-development to sell optimism to a fault. And I think that's dangerous. I think that, I mean, we've seen the consequences of that. Like it's, you look around, like you look around from people who started doing some of this stuff years ago when we, when we first met, many of them have fallen by the wayside. And I think it's partially because they felt encouraged to make really poor decisions where they didn't think too much about the future or the consequences of their choices. Uh, because we love this narrative that everybody can be anything. But the, the truth is that, you know, one of my mentors used to say, he's like, we're just not all created equal. Like there are certain people who are given certain strengths. What, he, this is the way to think about it is, you know, it's a difference between probability and possibility. And we basically focus on possibility, the exclusion of probability. Like I know for a fact that I could go to the gym every single day. I could basically follow LeBron James training regimen to the letter. And I promise you, I will never be on an NBA court playing ball with LeBron.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I like that. So in terms of bailing on stuff, have yeah. you, what are some things that you've bailed on after you've invested heavily, but you see that point? Oh, a perfect example you need is to
0: just cut. planning events. You know, like we've had, we had one really successful one and then everyone after that was a failure. And the thing is, once you see that you're like, all right, I'm about to lose money. I mean, this time around, it was like a blessing in disguise that it didn't work because of COVID, you know, like that would have been canceled anyways. But um, yeah, I mean, those are the big ones, right? Where we saw it's like, okay, we're going to lose money here. So why we're going to lose enough that it could bankrupt us, you know, like that's the mm-hmm. thing. I think that making huge bets where you don't protect your downside is just ridiculous. Like the, you know, and the funny thing is there are ways around that. It's like, don't spend 20 you know weeks creating a product that nobody wants to buy. Find out if they want to buy it first, you know?
1: Yeah. What are some products that you sell, and how have you decided if, so they, if people want them? So we
0: basically just have one subscription product, which is called Unmistakable Prime, uh, that includes all of our courses, monthly calls, you know, monthly coaching calls, live calls with our guests, uh, with the focus on helping creative people make their ideas happen. Uh, it basically simplified our entire business model, and then add, you know, selling ads. So you know, those are the big ones. I mean, I get hired to do speeches and stuff like that, but um, I you know, I try to like very. To me, everything is about streamlining. It's like, why overcomplicate the hell out of this, you know, uh, mm-hmm. because then we can put everything into one subscription and we can create lots of products Because what we're good at is creating content, you know, not constantly selling shit.
1: Yeah. So what are some of the things in in terms of the courses, some of the things that you offer within
0: Prime? Well, so prime is like, I wouldn't even just say it's a list of courses, but really it's about what I call the four foundations of, you know, creative success and making any idea happen. And that's, you know, the ability to manage your attention, the ability to develop the right habits, uh, you know, the power of a community. And uh, I can't even remember the other one off the top of my head, even though we just finished, uh, you know, writing this, but, uh, oh, systems, like you need systems, you know, so community systems, attention management, uh, and habit like those four foundations are really the things that make any idea happen and you know like the thing is once you understand that you can start you know this is where we get back to the idea of progress you just start to accelerate so much faster
1: yeah so when it comes to i'm just gonna shift gears a little bit back to the the ins and outs of podcasting a bit for my own uh curiosity when you pick a new guest how do you prep for them and does it differ if you already know them or there's someone completely new
0: it doesn't really differ whether I know them, already know them or they're completely new. I mean, uh, my prep is actually so shockingly minimal other than the fact that uh, like if I, if I they don't have a book, the most I'll do is read their about page, uh, mm-hmm. which seems really counterintuitive. But to me, the interview is the process of discovery. It is my research on this person. Uh, if they do have a book, you know, extensive book notes, um, things that I want to talk to them about during the interview, you know, concepts that I want to cover. Uh, you know, research that I want to do. So, you know, I'll give you an example. The other day, I met a woman who was talking about, you know, infusing uh, human emotion into computing, like she's an artificial intelligence expert that, you know, came out of the MIT Media Lab. And one of the things I asked her, I said, you know, is it possible to you know, do this with voice? Could we analyze the emotional impact of our content on our listeners? And she said, yes, and we should collaborate on that as a research study. I asked that question on purpose so that they would <laughs> let me do that. But, you know, it's that kind of stuff that, you know, I, I think about, like, it, it's, yeah. You know, everything I do is driven by just curiosity, nothing else. Like That is the the filter by which I run almost every decision. So then do you just
1: win it when you're there? You just, I mean, do you have like a yeah. list of questions? No, no, no. I
0: never have a list of questions. I know how I'm going to start and I know how I'm going to end and that's it. Um, oh, nice. So I build all of my questions based on their answers. So that does a couple of things. It forces you to listen in a really deep way. Like You can't not be present when you're doing that because you have to pay attention to everything they're saying if you're going to build your next questions. And the thing is, the problem with the next the list of questions is everybody thinks about it, you know, you're not listening, you're thinking about the next question you want to ask. Uh, you know, you look at the best interviewers, they'll tell you that that's, you know, they, they don't usually do that. Like I have an idea of things that I want to cover conceptually, but never the actual question itself.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, would you consider yourself a natural conversationalist? Or is this something you learned through podcasting?
0: Maybe a bit of both. I mean, I was very lucky that I got some positive reinforcement early on uh, where somebody said that, you know, oh, you're you're good at this. Now, now keep in mind, like I wasn't uh, at that time. <laughs> uh, you know, like I go back and listen. to. I mean, I, if I listen to stuff we did even two or three years ago, it makes me cringe. Uh, so it was a combination of like that positive reinforcement certainly helped. Uh, But, you know, I I think that I also had the, you know, I think from having been a musician, the ability to get behind a microphone and basically treat it as a performance was something that came naturally to me. That part was easy. I didn't get nervous when I talked to like really well-known or famous guests. It was just like, okay, these are people, like I'm curious about them. I just have questions for them. Um, But the, the rest of it, honestly, was just, you know, I mean, you do like a thousand interviews at some point, you know, eventually you start getting better at it, I'd like to think. But uh, that being said, like there are people I've, I've heard and I've been interviewed by and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this person shouldn't have a podcast like that might be cool to say. But at the same time, like they have other talents. And that's the that's the stupidity of this. Like everybody should start a podcast mantra that many online marketers are preaching because there are people who shouldn't start podcasts. who are really good at what they do. So instead of being like amazing at this one thing, you're now going to be mediocre at three things, which makes no sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, starting this is to, in an effort to like reconnect with community and things for us. Yeah. Like, I know I'm not good at this yet because I am very early in like learning how to do this and sort of working on like interview style and whatnot. Um, but yeah, like we've realized we got so disconnected from any, any network, any community because we're just, Dave and I are just working on our own, just yeah. always heads down in our houses. Um, when it comes to building your community, you do that through the podcast. Do you maintain your network of like guests? do you do you do anything to sort of like stay in touch? Do you feel like you become friends
0: afterwards or is uh, it more well, just interesting? so I, I have guests who I have become friends with, not all of them. Uh, I mean, as you might imagine, it's pretty hard to keep track of all of them. like <laughs> I could make an effort to like put some sort of database together. I mean the the funny thing is, The interesting thing about it, this is that like, I don't become close friends with every guest. A lot of famous people I've interviewed that I wouldn't consider a friend. Like I've I've interviewed Tim Ferriss twice. I don't consider Tim Ferriss a friend. Like he's not somebody Mm -hmm. I would call up on the phone. Uh, But then there are people who, you know, I have that kind of relationship with where, you know, I can call them or, or I just know, you know, from having had the conversation. The cool thing about it is that, you know, my friends always joke, like they're like, you literally know somebody who could do everything and make something, anything happen. And I'll give you an example. We want, we're doing this episode where we wanted to use a clip from Trevor Noah uh, about what it means to black and be black in America, where we've together, you know, sound bites and all this stuff. And it's really powerful and beautiful. The problem is when we went to Viacom, they're like, the media license is $4,000. So one of the guys in the episode is the founder of the Campaign for Blackmail Achievement. So I emailed them and I was like, Sean, I don't know if you can help me get this, make this happen. Like, do you have connections that could help us make a donation or raise the money for it? So he got involved and first he just offered to pay for the thing. He's like, no, this is, this is something we'll, we'll pay for. He's like, just send us an invoice. We'll cover the cost of it. So that alone is an example. But then he got really smart when I put him on the chain for the Viacom thing. He said, he's like, can you guys make this available as a tax deductible donation to the campaign for blackmail achievement? And it's stuff like that. Um, I'm not like, I don't look at my network as, um, I don't look at them as a place to go and just ask for things, you know, like it's kind of, I'm very mindful about how I do that probably to a fault. Like sometimes I remember even my agent got on my case. She was like, Hey, look, you've done a lot of good for all these people over the years. It's your book launch. She's like, it's time to cash in on that, you know? And yeah, I guess I just never saw, you know, the people that I'm, I'm are in my network that way. Uh, you know, cause I, f- I feel that like they've given me so much just by being guests, you know, but I'm also not afraid to ask for help when I need it. I mean, now with prime, Again, you know, like yeah, we're asking for for help and asking them to come and talk, and at the same time, we're giving them yet another opportunity to showcase their expertise. Yeah, I
1: think that's that's really the way to do it. You don't want to. You're not trying to burn your bridges. Like I think we connect and we're similar in that way because I am. Well, I don't want to say similar in this way. I am the worst at staying in contact with anyone. So part of part of doing the podcast too is trying to reconnect with some people that. Um, like yourself, we're just awesome and doing cool things and having a little chat. Um, so I just want to jump over to, um, Indian matchmaking. How did you end up on that show?
0: (laughs) Uh, That's a ridiculously long story. Actually, a friend from college, uh, contacted me and, and was like, Hey, one of my friends is producing this. And I thought of you. Uh, are you interested? And I was like, yeah, I was like, why not? You know, uh, I was like, uh, you know, I mean, there was no guarantees or anything. It was just, but uh, the, they basically needed a token like weirdo to to round things out because everybody were like doctors, lawyers, and engineers. And they're like, oh, you know, throwing me in there is like, you know, trying to throw a bomb that won't work into the whole situation. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, that, that's how, kind of how it happened. It was just bizarre, weird. I'm still, I still have no idea what it's going to look like, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Do you feel All like right. you uh, there were some takeaways you got from doing that, having that experience?
0: Well, look, you know, I you know, like between you and me, I, I told the producer, you know, it, and she didn't, she's like, you didn't tell the girl this. I said, look, best case scenario, I meet somebody. Worst case scenario, this is a fantastic publicity opportunity for my creative work. You know, like we get more podcast downloads, book sales, whatever. Um, or and then you know, and I'm the most eligible Indian bachelor in America. <laughs> yeah, like it just, I, I, I went in with no expectations and, you know, like it's kind of like there's no downside to this. It's actually kind of an interesting, you know, point of exposure. And, uh, you know, it, and the funny thing is, like, I think my work does come up. So people Google me while they're watching it, like we could see a, a big spike in, in a lot of things. And that's that was kind of worthwhile. So I, I looked at it more as a media opportunity than I did, you know, um, the possibility of like, oh, you know, I hope I, I meet somebody. I was like, yeah, that would be nice. But I wasn't expecting that that would, you know, all work out the way I wanted it to
1: mm-hmm, So I like to ask everyone if if this was like the last day that you were making money the way that you are, if your business yeah. for some for whatever reason tomorrow you had to pivot, do something different, mm-hmm. where would you begin with your with the knowledge you have now, with the growth that you've made over these years, knowing that you were starting from the ground floor on something, what would how would you approach it?
0: That's a good question. Uh, you know, like I, I think that I would basically look at, okay, actually fairly straightforward. It's like, what are my strengths? Um, where do those align with uh, something that people will pay me for? And what do I enjoy doing? You know, like the combo of those three things, it's kind of like the Chris Gillibo talked about this in his book born for this, where he's like, you know, so, you know flow, money and joy. So like looking at, you know, okay, I can't, like I couldn't do this anymore. Like then where, where else could I combine those three things? Um, because I think that's where you would find that. Uh, Because what we don't do, this is why I still think the whole everybody should start a podcast thing is the height of stupidity and one of the dumbest things to ever come out of an online marketer's mouth. Which I'm sure I'll get slaughtered for saying that when somebody hears this, (laughs) but I don't care. The reason that that's so utterly idiotic is because it doesn't take match quality into account. Like it doesn't take the consideration of do your talents match the environment or the project? Because for many people, it doesn't, you know, like and so. When we completely overlook that, it's just, that's why people end up in jobs they hate. I know because every job I've ever had is a job that I've hated. That's why I was fired from all of them. Because when you mismatch talent with environment, you get shitty results. And that's what happens when anybody says, oh, everybody should do something. No, there's nothing everybody should do. Like if somebody said, oh, everybody should jump off a fucking bridge, nobody would do that. But yet in the online marketing world, when people give that advice, you know, people jump on the bandwagon like there's no tomorrow.
1: Yeah, it's easy to give just a blanket advice and say this worked for this person or even well, it see it from the outcome.
0: Responsibility for how things go, basically. Then mm-hmm. you can say, okay, I can blame the author who wrote the book, the speaker who gave the talk, the podcaster who gave me that advice. You don't have to own how the outcome turns out.
1: Yeah. Self-reliance and really taking responsibility feels like it's something that that we lack today, um, just yes. as as a society. And that's definitely true. So I don't want to take too much of your time. Thank you so much for doing this. This was yeah. great to catch up and dive in. Um, for anyone listening, where should they go to follow uh, They can just
0: find uh, Unmistakable Creative in iTunes if they want a podcast or just, uh, you know, they want to look up everything else we're doing, unmistakablecreative.com.
1: Yeah. And that's awesome. I mean, a thousand interviews, so many great episodes. So I really hope people check it out. But Srini, thanks again for taking the time. And yeah, um, yeah we'll talk again yeah.
0: soon. All right, man. Sounds good. All right. See you.
1: A big thanks to Sereni for joining me on this episode. Be sure to check out his podcast at unmistakablecreative.com. As always, this episode of Started Now is brought to you by Built. At Built, we help you get started online. Whether you want to start a blog or a business, head on over to built.co. That's B Y L T.co to get started. Built, your website, built for you, simply. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Also, be sure to check out the video version on YouTube. You'll find all the links at built.co/008. That's slash 8 And that'll do it for this week. Again, I'm Jeff Seris, and this has been Starting Now, and I'll see you next time.